Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, where in the next episode I speak with Justin Penniston, writer on the new Sonic animated series and co-creator of the pulp fantasy adventure webcomic Hunter Black. In my podcast, Technology in Space, I speak with Cesare Barbary, a successful astronomer, about serious approaches to the search for extraterrestrial life. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Holly McKay, author of Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield, published March 22nd, 2021 by Jocko Publishing and D'Angelo Publications. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. So first, um, how did you get into, um, into doing this work and writing a book on ISIS battlefields? Right. So actually, journalism wasn't uh, something I really thought that I would go into. I always loved to write. As a child, I was always writing and creating. And I was actually a ballet dancer. Hmm. And I went away very young to pursue that career and ended up breaking my ankle. So that set me back a little bit. I went back to university in Sydney, got a bit restless. And so when I was 20, I decided to finish my degree in New York. And I went to New York. That was in 2006. So the digital era was just growing. And people were talking about these internships. And we didn't really have those in Australia. So I was very curious. And I applied at a bunch of places online. And I ended up getting a call from Fox. And they hired me in their digital department. So it was a really cool chance to use my writing to learn about this sort of digital phenomenon right in the the kind of beginning phases of it. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, I I was sponsored and and shuffled off to Los Angeles to uh, begin a journalism career. It was a little bit baptism by fire. Mm -hmm. I had to just kind of go out there and and meet people and find stories. And, and it was, yeah, it was a really different time, I guess. It was sort of pre-Twitter, pre, uh, Facebook was around, but nobody was really using it. And so, yeah, you had to sort of nourish that on the ground sense of journalism. And I just was a deeply curious person and I loved the idea of, of getting to the bottom of something. And so as my career progressed through my twenties, I just was so, I just couldn't really get my head around the situation of what was happening overseas. And I wanted to really take these things and these wars and these complexities. And I just felt that everything we were hearing was in a very macro sense. We were hearing about numbers and statistics. And I just, I wanted to understand what it was like for people on the ground. And I wanted to take, I guess, a micro approach and really focus on those human stories. And so uh, the first couple of trips, I just, I just felt that I was in my right place when I was doing it. And, it, you know, you're in the middle of chaos. And yet for me, I felt very calm because I felt that I was in my, in my calling. And I felt that if I could do this work, I should do this work. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, first, was Mosul your first stop in Iraq, you know, or did you take sort of baby steps? getting close uh, no i was all in <laughs> so uh so my first trip in iraq specifically was in 2014 so not long after isis had sort of swept in suddenly and and taken over mosul and a lot of the areas surrounding it so when i decided to go in i, I made a lot of connections in advance and were talking to different 
people in positions, especially in the north, in the Kurdish area. And I kind of went in there very early and just, you know, once you meet one person, it's a snowball effect and somebody else wants to tell their story and somebody else wants to tell their story. And then the next thing you know, you know, I was only there for a couple of days and I was on the front line and, and talking to the Peshmega soldiers there. So it was just a very kind of surreal, fast Again, it was another time for baptism by fire because suddenly you just have to be in the in the belly of the beast and you learn as you go. Mm-hmm. Who who um did you have to get permission from to travel there? I guess the U.S. State Department. No, 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 no. So um, yeah, at that point you you get uh, I'm it, it varies. Obviously, when you're in Baghdad, you get you get visas, but uh, at that point in the north, uh, you didn't you could get a sort of a visa at arrival or a temporary stay mm-hmm. and you didn't need to get paperwork in advance necessarily. But in any of the trips I've done, I don't, I don't get permission from the U S state department. I, if I require a visa, I go to the embassy of that particular country, but mm-hmm. none of my work um, requires permission from the U S to be there, I think. And that's important because journalism shouldn't be requiring government permissions. Yeah, actually, I'm sorry. I, you're Australian, so are I'm you, both okay. Australian and American. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So the book itself, talk about what it covers, um, the years, and and what you focus on. Yeah. So I started. It goes from 2014, and then really through to sort of the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, mm-hmm. and they were the real rise and fall years of of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And so I really wanted to get as many perspectives as possible. And so that entailed, and it is chronological, but it also entails talking to people from every side. So there's a lot of interviews with terrorists in there, as well as ISIS wives, uh, children that have been brainwashed into, into the into the fold, mm-hmm. Yazidis who survived sex slavery, mm-hmm. uh, old people who've been kidnapped and tortured, also the perspective of U.S. generals, the perspective of Syrian fighters, the sp- perspective of Iraqi politicians and Kurdish politicians. So I really just wanted to paint a very comprehensive picture from every perspective possible and just take the reader along to the, the battlefield with me and to really bring to life the consequences of war and what it's like to live through these things day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Who uh, who helped you get around? Who who gave you information or, or escorted you around in the dangerous areas? You know that was very much on on me to figure out logistics, and that's always a lot harder than um, than the actual work on the ground. Often, so I'd be tearing my hair out uh, from my homes in LA or, or when I moved to New York, just trying to meet one person, connect with one person, and put together some kind of rough schedule. But in terms of when I was getting around, it really depends on where I was and what I was doing. Uh, For example, if I was in the Kurdish area and was going to the front line, I would often be with the Peshmega soldiers and they they were sort of tasked to uh, protect you and and take care of you. So I would be going with them. Or if I was further south in Baghdad, I would either just be with my fixer, who uh, we as journalists, we hire people that we call fixers and they're generally local journalists or local workers and they help to facilitate interviews and logistics and drivers and that kind of thing they really do angel work they're amazing we wouldn't be able to do our job without them so sometimes i'm just kind of going with them so it really depends um mission by mission but i don't i don't go in with uh with security guards or with big teams i think that's 
that's sort of a lovely thing about being a writer for me is I, I enjoy that independence. I like being able to go in under the radar. Mm. I feel like I'm a little bit more secure that that way than I would be if I if I sort of had a bunch of, of burly guys around me. I think mm. uh, the more I can blend in, uh, that works for me. So it is daunting, and there are definitely times where I felt, oh my gosh, it wouldn't it be nice to to have a just you know one other colleague or somebody with me a photographer instead it's just me and my iphone mm. but uh but i really rely on the locals and, and trusted locals and you've got to um vet them as best you can and 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 hope for the best and i've always had really amazing luck with the people i've worked with on the ground so in this kind of work did did you have any episodes where you got maybe um dangerously close to you know the, the shooting and, and that sort of thing um yeah, I mean, there were definitely times. I remember one morning waking up. I was in uh, in Sinjar City after the liberation, and it was a completely bombed out city. And um, nobody was living there except that it was a military base for these soldiers. And I sort of was sleeping on a on a uh, basically an abandoned roof. Um, and we woke up one morning, and there was a lot of heavy shelling, and the whole city was just surrounded by. By bombing and then the coalition kind of came in and so you have this I guess it's you know it's a fear because as I said I, do, I don't tell the US where I am I don't you know alert officials that I'm going to be here or there because I do think that takes away from from my role as a journalist mm-hmm. um, so you never know you know when it, when and if you can also be a target so that's also something I have to factor into consideration as well but mm-hmm. for me I think I've always taken great um I've always felt very calm because the people that I am surrounded by, I feel like they, they live through this day in and day out and, and they get through it. And to me that, you know, I was never going to panic. It's healthy to feel some sense of fear, but not to panic. And I, I just felt that, you know, who was I to ever complain or to, you know, to want to run away when these people survive it day in and day out. So they're the real kind of heroes to me. I'm speaking with Holly McKay, author of Only Cry for the Living. You can find more information about her work at hollymckay.com. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So when you were starting um, your 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 information gathering in 2014, did you think you'd end up writing a book about 2014, or how did it end up taking four or five years? You know. Yeah, you know, and I wasn't sure. I mean, I always thought you know, it would be nice to somehow capture some of the moments, but I wasn't sure at that point, the best way to do that. And so it really wasn't until about 2016 
And I looked in my cupboard and I had about 20 or so of these black notebooks just filled with my, my scribble in there. And I am kind of an old school journalist in the sense that I didn't really go in and record. I like to sit with people. I like to sit and sip tea and spend hours with them and talk to them about their families and their lives and, and kind of take notes. And so I, I also really like to pay attention to detail. So the expressions on the faces, the colors that they're wearing, the smells, I think those things are, are really compelling in, in bringing readers in. But so I would take all these notes and I, I really wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with them. And then it wasn't until 2016 and I looked at these notebooks and I was still in the middle of going back and forth. And I just thought what I need to do is just to put together some of these notes into some kind of uh, legible form, but still keep it as raw as I could. And, and I didn't want to polish things too much because I wanted things to be sort of that run on sensibility that you're in there. So that was sort of how it came to be. And the logical way for me to structure that, I think, was in, in what I call memos, which is different slices and different stories uh, throughout the time, focusing on different aspects. And I think hopefully that uh, does enable that comprehensive picture, but also um, there's sort of something in there for everyone. So there are some memos that are focused on the idea of being uh, on the front line and what happens there. And then there are other memos uh, when you're with women who are surviving and mothers just trying to get by. So I hope that there's sort of a, there's something in there that, that we all can relate to. So how did you choose um, the individuals or the roles, maybe, maybe not the specific people, but the roles that you wanted to talk to people about, you know, the soldiers, the victims, the, you know, maybe, I don't know if you dealt with people, armed smugglers or tell, yeah. tell me the, the breath of the width and breath. Yeah. And I wanted to just, you know, I had so much material and, and what of them still so much material I had to leave out. It's a 400 plus page book, but mm -hmm. I think for me, my role was to, to sort of take a step back and to to allow people to to have their own voice and to present stories without a sort of a political edge or a certain bias. Um, you have to insert yourself a little bit into the narrative because I think that's also important. But I really wanted this book not to be about me and, and what I thought of a situation or how I felt, but really how they felt, what it's like uh, day in and day out and just sort of the nuances and the things that we don't realize and the struggles that people go through and, and how do you tell your child um, why they have to run from their house or how do you tell them why they're being persecuted based on their, their faith or their religion. And I just think these are the, the small things that always piqued my curiosity. And I think that I wanted to, to bring attention to those kind of details in these situations that can really give us just a stronger understanding of, of the consequences of war and, and what the people, the civilians caught in the crossfire have to endure. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also felt that it was important to interview terrorists and, and terrorist wives and people that are on the, you know, on the other side, because I think if we don't get a comprehensive understanding of where their mind is at and the reasons why they join these particular groups and the motivations and how, I guess, leadership structures unfold, then we're never really going to understand it. I think that is also a problem um, that, that we encounter is that, or all sides encounter, is that nobody's listening to each other. So journalism can be a kind of bridge for different viewpoints to be heard and maybe for for people in different unwearing parties to understand the other's point of view without actually having that direct line of communication. 
as a female reporter, um, what uh, challenges did you have dealing, interviewing terrorists, getting in touch with them? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't actually always found um, being a woman in a lot of these places is actually an advantage because I had, I guess, access to 100% of the population that a lot of uh, male journalists, they can't go and sit with the women necessarily and and talk about a lot of the horrific stuff for cultural reasons. But for me, I was kind of perceived as this the gender sort of role where they don't expect you to necessarily have to adhere to the norms of, of the women there, but you are given this kind of honorary status that enables you to go back and forth in between. Mm-hmm. So I think um, surprisingly enough, that was sort of how a lot of the terrorists viewed it too, is that I wasn't necessarily you know, I'm, I wasn't going to be, you know, subject to the, the regulations that they would subject their own women to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I was a, I was a Western woman, which they were aware of. And I was always very transparent about, you know, what, what I was doing and that I wasn't there to interrogate them. I was there to interview them and this was their chance to answer some questions and, and, um, have a chance to, to tell their side, which I'm sure that they rarely get. And they were, many of them are often, you know, chomping at the bit to, to uh, have their say. So mm-hmm. I think that was also important. And uh, yeah, I think once you are transparent enough that you aren't, aren't there for any other reason, but, but journalism, I think that um, they're willing to sort of treat you with a, uh, with a level of respect. So if, so I'm sure at some points people were telling you things that maybe they did or that they believed that were distasteful to you or in opposition to how you felt. What what methods or in what ways did you just kind of make sure you didn't interject your own feelings? Mm. And that's the importance of compartmentalizing it too. And I, I have to do a lot of mental work, I think, before I walk into a situation to kind of I distance myself a little bit from the narrative and I mean, let's face it, you're going to go into an interview with anyone. And if you're going to be immediately very hostile and very brash and want to stick it to the man, you're really not going to get great answers. And so again, being a writer, I wasn't there to sort of try to get um, this sort of TV and this kind of conflict. I was there to have a conversation. So I, I basically sort of had to go in there separate myself from what was happening and just treat it as if I was talking to, and I think there was a certain level that you, it takes a little bit to warm up a little bit to get into the mode. At first, I think I always maybe a little indignant and then eventually the conversation seems to, um, to flow a little bit once you develop that rapport. Mm -hmm. But I do remember in a couple of sort of situations and, and one in particular interviewing an ISIS bomb maker in a a prison and he was brought in and he was blindfolded and then, and, um, and, and shackled, but they took his blindfold off when he was talking to me. And one of my friends who uh, is Kurdish and obviously had suffered a lot under ISIS's takeover, I felt him, you know, getting extremely hostile next to me and, and really angry and starting to translate in a really angry manner. And I had to just ask him to leave the room um, because that was interfering with my, you know, ability to do the interview. But, you know, I also understand how um, emotional those experiences are for, for the people that have to live again through this day in and day out and, and the, the hatred that they rightfully so have against these terrorists. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's very difficult, I think, for them to be sitting in front of it. But uh, for me, that, that compartmentalizing is extremely important. 
how do you deal with situations maybe when you um uh doubted so, you know some facts that someone was telling you you know um maybe they make claims that you weren't sure about how, were you able to fact check um things like that Mm, definitely to the best of my ability. I, For example, if I was interviewing an ISIS fighter or an ISIS wife, and I would then always go and talk to some intelligence, uh, local intelligence uh, officials, as well as you know, police guards, whoever was kind of overseeing them day in and day out prison guards and try to sort of corroborate as much information as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, if they'd already been uh, trialed, it was a little easier because there was a lot more uh, court documents that you could kind of get to to try to back up uh, things that were said and done. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, you can only rely uh, on your sources and, and vet absolutely to the best of your ability. Um, and it's often hard in those places because there's language barriers, there's uh, rules and regulations and, and different things, but uh, I think it's important to to never take these things at, at face value and, and do your best to try to uh, to get to the bottom of, of what's happening. But at the same time, what also makes it difficult is that, again, it's such an emotional issue that you can be dealing with uh, intelligence and security officials, and they also have their own agendas as well. And it's, it's um, ISIS obviously affected them and they're personally affected by it. So you have to bear in mind that everybody is sort of coming at it uh, with a cert- certain sense of personal bias. And I think that's why it's also important to have outside journalists that, that can kind of come in and, and deflect those situations a little bit. I think sometimes, too, if you're only relying on the journalism that's done on the ground mm-hmm. and the local journalism, which is extremely important, but the, the picture, again, is going to be a lot different to the picture that perhaps uh, an outsider can kind of come in with, with a little bit more of a, a neutral slate. Mm-hmm. Were there instances where you ended up, not not by choice, but ended up part of a story or part of an incident? Um, you know, maybe you were asked, hey, can you help us move this person who's been injured or something like that? Um, I mean, you're always, I guess, to a degree, you're part of a story. You're going into people's homes and you're living with them. And, and certainly I'm a human before I'm a journalist. So anytime anyone was in, in desperate need of anything, I, I did whatever I could to to try to help them. But I think, uh, you know, it's, it's always frustrating because it, you're limited to what you can do as well. And I think a lot of the times these people are in desperate need of, of, of doctors and, and psychiatrists and, and weapons and money and all these sorts of, of things. And so I can, I can only give so much. And, uh, and that's always, you know, a, a feeling that I, I struggle with a little bit in terms of guilt. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, I'm definitely not the journalist that, that says, oh, I can't, you know, I can't lift you or I can't help you. I, I do try to, even if it's just sitting with a person for as long as I can and, and listening to them or, or taking their, their child to the market or that's part of being in people's lives. That's part of the journalism that I try to do in, in terms of, of just being with people and staying with people and, and really trying to understand life from their purview. Mm-hmm. Were there in a, the the U.S. Um, presence in Iraq? I guess in 2014 it was really low, and then it just started to grow up again as ISIS grew. Um, were you able to talk to U.S. personnel at all, or any U.S. Yeah, definitely. In the beginning, it was a lot. It was a lot more difficult. I think the U.S. was a lot more sort of hidden in in its first few months, and and the presence was definitely in the shadows. Mm-hmm. But over time, I, I definitely I spent I spent a bit of time in in um, in Baghdad with U.S. troops, and then with some Australian troops as well. Um, 
and kind of moved around and, and also met, uh, went to a couple of their bases in the north and Abil and also in Syria. I, I saw some of the U.S. troops there as well. So I definitely tried to get their perspective. I was in uh, communication with the, the, you know, a lot of the Pentagon spokespeople quite frequently and uh, and tried to paint their perspective as much as possible. And uh, there's, there's quite a bit of that in the book as well as sort of the generals when they were talking about uh, just in the months after the Mosul liberation and, and the challenges that came from that and the importance of having a clear mandate. I think for them, um, you know, whether you agreed with it or not, the mandate was that ISIS needed to be defeated. And I know that there are a lot of foreign policy people who wanted that to be a little bit more broad. They wanted to include perhaps the Iranian-backed militias or this Assad regime to be taken out. There was a lot of other things at play. But the mandate from the U.S. side was very clear that ISIS needed to be defeated. And in some ways, I think that was achieved because uh, it was it was a very a very clear vision that the uh, that the commander in chief gave, and I, I think uh, that that was carried out. Was there um, any point during this span of years when you came across uh, a place that you had been to before, maybe you hadn't been to, but you were familiar with it in some way, that you were shocked by by? a change or something new that was going on. Like you're a reporter, you you expect change, but was there some, any point where you were just struck by what you encountered? I would almost say lack of change struck me more than any change. And so I think a lot of the people that I, I met very early on um, in my, in my journalism there, who'd be displaced from their homes would run from their homes and then I'd go back in and, and over time and, and find that they were still still displaced and that the situation had become even more unbearable for them and the funding had dried up. And, of course, when ISIS is no longer headline news, so therefore the funding does go away and the situation actually becomes worse for a lot of these people because they still can't go home. Their homes are still in ruins, uh, demolished to the ground. They haven't been rebuilt. And so there really isn't anywhere for them to go but to stay in these camps. And they're staying in these camps with tents that haven't been replaced for four years, despite uh, the many changes of seasons and the challenges that come from that. And so for me, it's it's kind of shocking to see the situation deteriorating even more when you even when you think it can't get any worse and it does and mm. and that's been a really sad aspect of this war is is sort of seeing that and the longer time goes on the more the you know the situation is only going to get worse for them and the less money that's going to be devoted to that cause in particular um and i think that's that's really sad to me i get the impression with uh some of these refugee camps that you generally have organized crime takeover or or strong some strong man or strong element that's unsavory, I guess, is maybe the word to use. Mm. Do you see that? Did you see that in these war zones where? Yeah. You know, I mean, ref, you know, refugee or displacement camps are always going to be challenging places. And a lot of those dynamics are going to carry over. Um, they're often very unsafe places as well, especially for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, that again, it comes down to how much security and how many resources can be provided in a lot of these places and and basic setups, you know, often, you know, it's the, sort of the simple things that really baffled me where you'd go to a place where, you know, certain uh, women were, were so far away from latrines and, you know, that's a really dangerous trek at night for uh, a woman to have to walk in the dark by herself without any functioning lights 
to latrines on the other side of the camp. And so it's sort of little logistical things like that that always sort of surprise me that can make a big difference in terms of the, the safety aspect of it. But yeah, you always are going to have um, concerns over cells or concerns over infiltration. And it's a it's an unsecure place for, for people to, to be. And I think there's just this constant sense of what I can only imagine for a lot of these people is that there really isn't a safe place to go. Home is not safe. The camps are not safe. And getting on a boat and trying to go overseas is is not safe. So um, it's it's a really sad, exhausting feeling. Mm-hmm. So we're, I, I get the sense, just to correct me here, so I, it sounds like you were primarily in Mosul and then you went to some other areas as well. Is that correct? Or is it more... <laughs> It was all over the place, honestly. It was, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the north in the Abil area. I'd go uh, kind of up further toward the Hook, which is kind of closer to where sort of Turkey, Syria, and Iraq all meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would be out in Sinjar, which is, again, it's, it's further east toward the, the Syrian border, uh, the town of Talafa, also down near the Syrian border, and then Mosul. Uh, I spent a bit of time in Baghdad as well, and then even further south of Baghdad, which is a lot more of a sort of a stringent uh, religious uh, Shia aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of the time in Iraq. And then uh, and then Syria was also a mixed bag. Um, I would spend time in Kobani and a lot of the very Kurdish-dominant areas. And then as far off as sort of Mambij and, and Dezol, which are a lot more Arab-dominant and uh, a lot of where the heavy ISIS fighting was happening as well. So mm. I kind of moved around a lot. <laughs> it was sort of, yeah, living out of my backpack for a long time. Mm-hmm. And did you do the stand where you, you know, wearing your Kevlar helmet and, and vest and that kind of stuff when you went about? <laughs> Yeah, in certain places. I, I only really do that when I, I have to, if I know that I'm going to be on a front line. Otherwise, if uh, if I'm just sort of regularly cruising around or going into people's homes, I, again, you know, often well, pretty much none of them have the, um, you know, have their own body armor. So I certainly don't want to go into, into somebody's home for tea, even if it is a dangerous situation, mm-hmm. uh, wearing my body armor. I try to be, I guess, is as normalized with them as I can. So yeah, the body armor, it's always around, but I, I only try to wear it uh, in, in situations that really require me to wear it. Otherwise uh, it can, can weigh you down to, I think even um, some front lines that are a little bit more tricky to get to where you have to, you know, take wagons up hills or horses and that kind of thing. You can't take your body armor because it will only, it will only weigh you down when you've got to be able to maneuver around fairly easily. So it's all situation by situation. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Holly McKay, author of Only Cry for the Living. You can find more information about her work at hollymckay.com. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast.
So this question is about the people involved in fighting on, on any side. Um, was there anything that struck you as surprising or unusual, maybe the ages or their attitudes or, or their approaches to fighting? I think what was always fascinating, especially with the Kurds, was the sheer age range that you're looking at. So you really have these sort of multi-generation of fighters and, and the Kurds and the Peshmerga are just, they're so, um, they're so clear about what they're fighting for and they're really fighting for this idea of Kurdistan and they're fighting for this idea of independence and, and this extremely patriotic to their homeland. And so that was, that was phenomenal to me because you can meet, uh, you can meet a unit with, uh, somebody who's 18 years old and then, you know, so his brothers that are in their 20s and then their father who's in his 40s and then his father who's in his 60s or 70s. And I, I believe there were some some men that were sort of fighting into their 80s as well that were just volunteering and, and grabbing their AK-47 from home and donning whatever camouflage they could get and just getting into the fight because they felt that strongly about about their country and, and fighting for it. Um, the Iraqis, uh, Iraqi army is obviously a little bit more structured than that. And so they tend to, to skew a little bit younger, especially with their, their special forces and things, because there's a little bit more uh, yeah, structure, I guess, to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, what I admired a lot about the Iraqis was, I think in the beginning, they were very I guess, humiliated when so many of them abandoned their posts and, and ran when ISIS came into Mosul in June 2014. Mm-hmm. But what was remarkable to me was watching them over the course of the four years just really grow into this incredibly patriotic, strong and capable force. And, and they had this kind of oomph to them that I didn't I didn't see in the beginning. And that was really nice to watch them want to fight for their country and find reason to fight for their country. And I, I thought that was sort of a remarkable trajectory and a really welcome one. What about the women that you spoke to? What were their attitudes towards the fighting? Did they just want the war to stop or did they express sort of an understand or a desire for victory or, or whatever? Uh, You know, I think again, it's dependent, but, you know, I met some remarkable women who were fighting. Um, there was one group called the Sun Ladies in uh, in the Kurdish region. They were all Yazidis. And so they had, so many of them had been taken as sex slaves and returned, or their mothers or their sisters or their daughters were taken. And so one of them, her name was Kasun, decided that she wanted to create her own fighting force. And they were all women. And they were just remarkable. They called themselves the Sun Ladies and, and none of them had really had any experience and they were shattering all these taboos and they were getting weapons and training with the men and they wanted to be part of liberating Sinjar, which is the Yazidi area, and, and really take an active role in that fight and uh, and continue to take an active role in that fight. And I think that was twofold. There's part of it, of course, that wants to seek a certain level of revenge against the, the people that have committed absolute atrocities against them. And then there's this idea of empowerment too, of of, of reasserting their value and reasserting their strength. And I think being part of that, that fight in a very physical sense uh, was really important to them. And so it was really, it was really incredible to, to spend time with them. And there were several groups like that. A lot of the women in Syria are very active on the front lines. Um, and there are other uh, Zavanis, which uh, sort of initially were kind of like a national guard or border patrol. And now that they, uh, when ISIS came in, they took a lot more of an active role in the fight too. So I think, uh, it really showed, uh, I guess, the strength of women and, and them really wanting to to be very viscerally in the action. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, considering the atrocities, 
are people able to, I'm thinking in terms of Geneva Convention, are people able to mm. um, take prisoners and treat them kindly? Or uh, My feeling is that on both sides, if whoever's taken prisoner is just go- going to suffer. Um, yeah. Is that what you saw? Yeah, I mean, ISIS is certainly not going to recognize anything right. uh, to do with the Geneva Convention. Their whole objective was going back to this idea of the caliphate, which was definitely did not entail any Geneva Convention. So that's also a challenge for countries that do adhere uh, to those rules and rules of engagement, because you are fighting enemies a lot of the time that um, don't have such rules and, and sort of restrictions and can do what do what they want. And ISIS certainly uh, was... If, incredibly brutal in its treatment of prisoners so it definitely didn't show any kind of sense of remorse or or adherence to any of what we would consider to be international norms or a sense of justice so uh, they very much run things by their own rules but having said that they were a surprisingly structured organization they had um, I remember finding files prisoner files from them and they, they were very much like prisoner files that you would find in an ordinary government with sort of photos and dates of births and and causes of arrest and and, uh, conviction dates and uh, sentencing dates. And it was structured. And I think that's what enabled ISIS to succeed so much was that they were able to effectively govern to some degree and they weren't just sort of a ragtag militia. Mm -hmm. And and on the Iraqi side or the the other side, did I guess that my question was more aimed at them. Did you see proper treatment or did you see situations that were not not mm-hmm. good i think uh i mean we can we can look to uh, i mean the kangaroo court system that's happening with iraq right now which is where hundreds of oasis fighters and have been sent and been executed um and obviously iraq is extremely you know they're very there's no remorse uh given at all for any of the any of the fighters which is very understandable but it is troubling when um, you know, people are, are being sort of tried in, in one minute and they don't have legal representation and don't have an argument to kind of stand on. And yet they are being, are being sentenced to death. And I think that is that is troublesome. And, and it's also very, it's a very different dynamic, say, to Syria, where the SDF has these jails full of ISIS fighters and they're really struggling to keep them in there because they don't have the resources or the money to even sort of instigate any type of legal process. Um, and then that would possibly have to go through the Assad regime or, you know, the U.S. doesn't want to be involved in it. So there are two very broad dynamics there. Um, But I definitely, you know, as much as a lot of these people uh, will tell you that they adhere to Geneva Conventions and that they don't instigate torture, I think that that is is largely largely not adhered to to the the best of of their ability. There's extreme emotion surrounding the issue too. Mm -hmm. So uh, for Iraqis who who feel... um, that they've had to, you know, lose so many loved ones and, and have given up so much over the past six years. Um, there's certainly no love lost when an ISIS prisoner is is brought in or, or sentenced to death. But, you know, it is difficult because we uh, we want to know that there is accountability and justice are important, but, you know, the justice has to be carried out in a way that we can feel uh, somewhat comfortable with. And, and I definitely have my discomfort with how a lot of it has been carried out. Did you um, come across any foreign fighters? Absolutely. Um, There are many foreign fighters and many foreign wives. I spent quite a bit of time interviewing uh, one particular guy from, he was from Sweden and uh, he spent 
uh, you know, was explaining his sort of whole travel process and how he kind of came through Syria initially and, and when ISIS was sort of still al-Qaeda and then it branched off and then he pledged his allegiance. And so a lot of them were very open to, to talking to me, and including women from Germany and from other Western countries. And I think that was because they really needed no one from their home governments had come to visit them. And I think that they were just sort of fed up of being held in these um, giant jails or, or displacement camps. And so their only recourse, I think, was to speak to a journalist to hopefully get their message out there and hope that in some way, shape or form that they would be able to to go home and, and face a court of law there for, for their role. And I think a lot of them were prepared to do that. But there was no open dialogue at that point with, uh, with anyone from their country. And so in speaking to me, I think that they wanted to um, express that they were ready to to go home and face whatever whatever was waiting for them in terms of legalities. Hmm. So you sort of answered this question a little bit before, but um, what most surprised you in general that you came across? I just think it was the multi, um, I think sometimes we look at terrorism, you know, in a very much a black and white prism here. And, and we tend to view it as being a solely religious extremism that drives people to, to join these groups. And really what I found there in terms of locals that it is a factor but it's not the factor and a lot of the times people were joining these groups because it was pure survival so if uh, isis comes into your your village and you're just a poor farmer and they take over the farm that you're working at and you still need to make money and feed your family at home maybe you're not going to care so much where that money is coming from or maybe you fear you know any sort of retribution if you decide that you aren't going to pledge that allegiance so i think it's a really complicated issue especially for um, the poorest sort of echelons in, in iraq that really were trying to get by and, and very much had nowhere else to go and, and didn't have much of a choice but to to put their support behind their groups to to get the money and there were there were just so many factors that came into it there's a uh, there's religion there's education there's social pressures there's just this idea that you know, one, one uh, ISIS fighter I met was simply trying to run away from a bride. It had been an arranged marriage and he didn't know her and then found that she couldn't have kids. And so he was trying to run away and he said he couldn't go north. So he went to, to get some land and he, you know, went into to the ISIS battlefield. So I, I didn't find... Um, a lot of them to be, I found a lot of them to sort of be these kind of fake religious zealots, if that, if that makes sense. So when I would talk to them about religion, it was sort of this brainwashed indoctrination, but it was kind of disingenuous mm-hmm. um, that they were just kind of spouting off what they were told to say, but I don't really think that they believed it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just a really nuanced, uh, a really so many nuanced reasons as to people joining and just, and also just the idea of, of uh, a Shia government coming to power and, and persecuting them. And, and a lot of them were just, it was built up anger for feeling persecuted after the fall of Saddam Hussein that they um, wanted to to kind of fight back. And so I think it's such a nuanced thing. And that's really what surprised me that, it, it, you know, you can't peg it all, uh, solely on religion. Mm-hmm. What uh, was there a particular question or issue that you were really trying to get to the bottom of and maybe felt like you did? Maybe some any aspect of what you looked into, or maybe there's something you'd still really like to get an answer to. I think for me, I was always deeply captivated by the situation with the Yazidis, and they're just these sort of very uh, you know, poor, innocent people that were living on Sinjar Mountain and the villages around it, and then just one day 
It's one moment they were living their normal, very peaceful lives. And the next day, this sort of group had surrounded the mountain and they had nowhere else to sort of run to. And, and any mechanisms that had been put in place to protect them had all run away and gone. And that was just devastating what had happened. And, and thousands of them had been taken. The women and, and girls had been taken as sex slaves. And a lot of the boys had been uh, taken and brainwashed and, and forced into being uh, child soldiers. And a lot of the men were just executed. And it was just it's horrific to think about it. And you won't meet a Yazidi who doesn't have at least a dozen family members who are dead or missing. And, and that was always heartbreaking for me. And so a lot of the work I kind of wanted to do each time was trying to understand how many were missing, how many were brought back and, and where a lot of the missing girls were. And I think prior to the fall of Mosul, there was a sense of hope that maybe a lot of the girls would, and women would be found and turned to their families when the liberation happened Mm -hmm. and it kind of didn't play out that way so I always wanted to kind of understand well well, what happened to a lot of the the women and girls and what I did find was that so many of them had been especially the younger ones boys and girls had been given these new identities and and they were given these Arab identities and, and taken with families and and so they kind of lost a sense of self of even who they were and and then a lot of them were taken into other countries like Turkey or Syria. And so what makes it really difficult to find them? And when you can't find them by their name and you can't, uh, you know, and a lot of the boys were in jails as ISIS fighters. And when you can't get in there and get the DNA, it's extremely frustrating for, for families and for people that want to try to rescue them. And so uh, that's something I've always continued to try to work on is try to figure out what role I can play in bringing awareness to the issue so that, uh, a lot of these uh, these girls and women and boys can can be found and and hopefully are brought back and and return to their who they're supposed to be. Yeah, it's it strikes me as sort of a, a variation on genocide, more like a cultural genocide where where you either kill them all or just transform them into something different, like you say, new yeah. identities. So yeah, and when you're young enough and you're impressionable enough, it's. It's that the brainwashing is is really heart wrenching, and and so often the boys would be coming back too, and out of these ISIS camps, and there really wasn't the professional resources for them, and so they were still, uh, you know, very angry and very uh, in this sort of fighter mode, and would still refer to themselves sometimes with their their Arab names instead of their Yazidi names, and and in one situation there was a young boy at a camp who tried to behead his baby sister, and it was just it was so horrific to to sort of think that they'd been through so much and been brought back and yet it was just so hard to to bring them back in the in a a psychological sense and and that was uh you know i can only imagine how the mothers must feel and how deeply painful that is mm-hmm. also the uh the issue of systemic rape you know i it's such a part of war unfortunately and it seems like it's no exception here but i can't tell if it's worse it was worse in this situation than in other wars or if it was you know, the same, you know, you see it all Mm. the time. So I don't know if you have a comment on that. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, again, it's, uh, it's only really been in the last, um, I think it was 98 that, that sexual violence was even sort of recognized as a, as a war crime. So it's still Mm. relatively new, despite the fact that it has been happening since the beginning of time. Mm. I think what's different about this case is the Yazidis really, they really shattered taboos and they, it was really the first time I've ever seen 
groups come out and very openly talk about what had happened to them. And especially in these very closed and conservative societies where there is just so much shame uh, surrounding the idea of sexual violence and, and women and girls will never talk about it because they can be ostracized from their own families. And that's really sad. But what we saw with the Yazidi community was that they were coming out and they were talking about what happened to them and, and their religious leaders were, were really standing up and saying, to their families like the, the girls here are the victims you know they aren't to be punished or, or persecuted based on, on what has happened to them and i think these Yazidis wanted to a see justice for what was done to them and b uh try to to break some of those taboos in the hopes of of stopping this from happening again and it was remarkable for me to see how willing they were to talk about these horrific things mm-hmm. and i also think something else i think people don't think about or talk about much i don't know if you came across it um not systemic rape of men but i think male prisoners are also raped quite often Mm. Um, yeah and that's been something i've i've worked a lot and sort of tracked a lot of especially in syria throughout the war in syria which has been been going on for more than 10 years now mm. and so i mean the, the sort of stories that have come out of those prisons there have just been so disturbing to me, um, the, the level of torture and rape. And uh, and again, it's extremely difficult for for boys and men to be able to come out and talk about these things. And, and I, I, I could write a whole book about that too, but I think it's a, things are slowly shifting. I've definitely met survivors that are, that are coming out to share their stories. It is, I think it's going to take a little bit more time, but it is, uh, it is something that is, it's happening. It's still happening. And it's, it's, it's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's a horrifying situation and it's, it's good. That's you, you're willing to go out there and and bring these stories back. Um, yeah. Um, what, uh, this, this might seem like a strange question, but what did you enjoy most about your experience? And, you know, that's the, the, the odd thing about covering conflicts is there's so much that you, you learn to love and enjoy and there are such pleasant moments in all the the madness and the chaos too and I think for me I was just blown away by the just how strong or how extraordinary ordinary people can be and this kind of resilience and and who am I to ever complain about my life and and what I do when I'm just sitting with these most remarkable human beings who have just who's been through so much and have left their homes sometimes time and time again and, uh, you know, are able to get by and they'll give you the clothes off the back if they can. And I'm just, it's a real honor for me to be able to, to sort of be able to walk into people's lives and for them to share the most intimate details of, of what they've experienced with me in the hopes that I can spread that to a broader audience and, and send back a rough draft of history. And that is something I, I take an extreme, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't feel pity because these people don't need pity. What they need is somebody to sort of support them in that way. And I just, I, I'm really honored that I have had this opportunity in my life to, to be, I guess, bear witness to a lot of these pivotal things in history and to really forge uh, deep connections with people in far flung places that I would would never have met otherwise. And so there's just, there's so much learning. There's the food and the cooking and the singing and, and just being part of the, the sort of the celebrations. And they're just little moments of life that I, I deeply treasure. Do you think um, at this point right now, March, 2021 is the West, does the West still care about 
this situation or is it become one of those back burner stories like, yeah, we're not at war with them anymore. We defeated them, whatever, let's move on. Like what's your. Sure. I think from a policy level, I think obvious for obvious reasons, uh, we will always have to have some form of engagement in the Middle East, whatever that looks like. And it's always going to be a, a part in shaping our foreign policy. Um, I think, you know, ISIS obviously has fallen a lot from the headlines and there's been a lot of other things. We have a global pandemic, we have China, we have uh, issues in so many Iran and so many different fronts uh, that we contend with. But I've always I've always been very perplexed by, I guess, sort of the media conglomerate in the way that there's this this long-running idea that that world news, that Americans don't care about world news and and world news needs to be on the back burner. But when you present these stories to people and when you you give it a great placement on a website or or make it a segment in, in news or really sort of, I guess, put it in front of somebody's eyes. Americans will read it and Americans do care. And Americans, I've just been blown away by the generosity of Americans and how many emails I get sometimes asking, how can I help these people? What can I do? And to me, that's just, that's extraordinary to me. So I think we need to give more credit to the American audience about, you know, what it is that they are interested in learning about. And I think I would, I would love to see, uh, some of these stories get get better placement, and I, I think people will read them when it's in front of them, and there's just this kind of lingering idea that people are only going to click on the clickbait, but I think I think people do care, and I, I would like to see uh, the news a little bit more accessible to, to everybody. A little bit of a technical question. When you did your interviews, did you audio record, or did you just stick to writing? It really depended. Most of the time, I stuck to writing because I... I never want to be too reliant on technology. So often when I was going into these places, I didn't even take a laptop. I just went in with my phone and, and maybe a burner flip phone as well, because for safety reasons, I think it's a, you know, it's a lot easier to break into someone's laptop than it is for a phone. So I was always very aware of that. I also wanted to be as, as light as possible, uh, really just getting around with a backpack as much as I could. And so that meant as little tech as I could. Mm. And yeah, I still, I guess I'm just old school in, in the way that I approach my journalism is still very much the old fashioned notebook. And, and that's really something valuable to me. I think there's a certain intimacy with it. Having said that, there were some, some interviews that I did record, um, just because uh, for clarity reasons, or if they were officials, I, I wanted to, um, to kind of not be, you know, looking down so much, but when I had the opportunity to to sit with people in, in their homes or, or on front line or wherever it was, it was usually just my notebook and me because I wanted to um, just to kind of converse with them and, and, and have a, a very different experience. I think people can open up to you a lot more when they feel that every, you know, every word isn't, isn't being grasped. And so I think that's also a nice thing about, you know, not always having a camera around either, because I think that second that people see a camera or a recorder, they, they tend to climb up a little bit. And my objective as a writer was to really draw out uh, as much truth and, and authenticity as I could. Did you bring a still camera with you? No, not even. everything was iPhone. So which is actually great too, oh. because when I was able to get to uh, Wi-Fi or to, uh, a, a decent enough connection. What I did was I would upload a lot of um, the videos or the photos or whatever else I took on notes to a kind of a Dropbox shared file. So it was sort of safe 
uh, in a cloud somewhere. So therefore, if I had to delete anything or if I lost my phone or anything kind of like that happened, uh, there was it was already backed up. So you always hear the horror stories of, of people taking your, your USB sticks or your memory cards when you're leaving in an airport, uh, which a lot of foreign countries like to do if they uh, want to question the content of it. So uh, you can sort of, yeah, take that and give that to them and know that your content is still uh, safely hiding in the digital world somewhere so i i liked the i like the simplicity of that approach good um and i don't know maybe you might not want to answer this question but maybe you would um was there any situation where you just totally broke down like you were interviewing with someone that it was just too much for you Mm -hmm. to take what you were hearing yeah and that did happen a couple of times and and you know that was a that's always hard because you want to maintain your composure as much as you can. But again, I'm always a human first before I'm a journalist. And I think one memory that sticks to mind is is being uh, with the Yazidis and, and sitting with them and uh, with one of their religious leaders, Bobby Chowish, and uh, a bunch of the men were on the floor. And I remember they were just showing me these horrific pictures of babies, Yazidi babies that were being burned on stoves by ISIS. And and then uh, some of the old men that had sort of been taken and they were showing me these before pictures and then the after pictures of the corpses. And I just, and then when I saw the babies, I just, I just broke down. And I just, I think it was, it was a combination of just so many horrific stories that had compounded, you know, over the months and the weeks and the days. And then, and just sort of looking at this and then just knowing that it was still going on and still going on 20 miles down the road from where I was sitting. And I felt so powerless to stop it. And I just remember just completely breaking down and then, and then looking back up at, at these EDs, the people who were living this, whose own mothers and, and sisters and loved ones had all gone and just seeing these expressionless faces. Mm-hmm. And it was just that point that, you really realized that they had reached this this place that was beyond grief. It was beyond anything that I could even begin to imagine. Mm-hmm. It was just this place of of where you nothing is going to you know break your break you down anymore because you've already seen and done and experienced it all, and you're you're so holding that. And I just I thought how how tragic that was that they would sort of reached this this place that mm-hmm. I could only begin to imagine and and so that was really that was really a difficult night for me so you know so so sometimes people will explain horrific behavior on you know sort of you know these these kids grew up in a war zone and they all they learned was violence and this and that and you know there's different explanations for why people commit evil acts like this did you find were you able to sort of get to an understanding always get to some understanding of why people did what they did or were there any instances where you just thought this is pure evil or I, I don't want to use black and white terms like that, but mm. did you, mm. were there situations where it was just inexplicable, you know, horrible stuff going on that you just couldn't understand where it came from? Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's always a root somewhere where it came from. But I think you have to look at a lot of the the acts that were committed. You're putting people in cages and burning them alive. You're feeding them to, um, you know, animals. You're, you know, they are horrific things that are happening. And and I think that it's okay to say that you can't make sense of things that don't make sense. And, And certainly I can 
try to make sense of the reasons why people pledge allegiance and why they join these groups, but I can't, you know, for the life of me, make sense of that, that any sort of violence in, in that sort of brutal matter could be in any way, shape or form for, for a higher power or for a higher cause. I think that is just pure and utter um, brutality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what, so what do you hope the book will do for readers? just really hope to give people a really comprehensive understanding of what war does to people and I ask this question a lot throughout it which is what is war and it's so many different things and I just I want to take people on a journey with me into that battlefield and just to highlight what it's like to be a civilian caught in the crossfire and what the consequences of war are and I hope that in painting this uh, in, in in showing these sort of micro stories so to speak we can paint a very macro picture of a war without the sort of sanitized news articles and the statistics but just take people along for that journey and and give them that insight and i just think it's important to factor these things in every time the united states might be considering going in or intervening in a certain conflict and i think it's important to understand um, you know, is military the best course of action? What are the ripple effects? And we really have to question doctrine and question not only what our involvement does, but what the involvement does to the people on the ground. And is it for the right reasons? And, you know, could, could we help them in a, you know, maybe a more effectual way than, than boots on the ground type thing? So I just think to make those decisions, and it's all case by case, but to make those decisions effectively, we need to really have a deeper, um, I guess, understanding of, of what war does. And I think so often we don't really uh, recognize what it's like to live day in and day out of a, of a brutal conflict. Yeah. Did you have any difficulties getting the book finished or published? The difficulties in it was just, you know, for time, it was time for me because I was working full time. I was still traveling a lot to a lot of places, not only in the Middle East, but um, I was going a lot to to Afghanistan or Yemen or Africa or, um, you know, parts of Asia. So I, uh, I it was timing. So I really had to uh, carve out, you know, chunks of time, often midnight till 3 a.m. and then be up again at 6. So um, it was a little bit uh, just kind of slotting it in there. But I really loved the writing process. I, I loved being able to step outside, I guess, the sort of the rules of journalism and, and be able to to sort of take that that more narrative approach, which I, I really love to do and to be able to paint things with, I think, a lot more detail than, than I often can as a journalist. So that was a... A very cathartic experience for me uh, at the same time. Um, in terms of publishing, I think initially there was a bit of rejection with it because I think people thought, oh, nobody cares about ISIS or there are, you know, there are already ISIS books. But I almost felt that, you know, I fought for mine because it was different than a lot that had been written. A lot had been written throughout the sort of the, the peak of ISIS and it was a lot more focused on the battlefield components and the policy components and I guess what I wanted to do was to, to paint the, the chronological order of it, but also go back to the aftermath. And, and books uh, like Hiroshima have always really inspired me because they go back, you know, decades later and they go back and they say, well, you know, what is the situation now? And they, they, they take us through the lives of, of these people uh, in Japan, the doctors and the, the, the priests and the different people and, and highlight. And for me, I think that's important. And that's often what's lost is this idea of the aftermath. So I wanted that to be a really important focus of my book too. So I, I continued to fight for it and then was able to, uh, 
to sort of um, publish equally under Docker Publishing and D'Angelo Publications, and um, and they gave me a, a great sense of creative control. And I think also a lot of people, uh, previous publishers, had wanted me to really cut it down, and I I rallied against that because I every memo was there for a reason, and every person's story really mattered to me, and it, it was heartbreaking to think I would have to go through and and delete a lot of that. So I I held out for for quite a while. Um, and then was sort of really happy with uh, being able to to maintain that control and get the full story out. Do you in the book? Um, do you have sort of a wrap up where you discuss your your opinions on the U.S. or or other countries' involvement in this situation, or do you just kind of leave it? Yeah, I really wanted to. I you know there was a lot of people that had had wanted me to to sort of interject myself in there a lot more and, and give more of an opinion, but I didn't feel that was my role. I felt that my role was as a journalist to, uh, you know, to, to insert myself in there to a degree as as the narrator, but also. Um, this was their stories. This wasn't my story. This was for the people that were living through this day in and day out. This wasn't, um, and I think that's, I think we've seen that's often a, sort of a bit of a kiss of death in journalism now is so much focus is around the journalists themselves being a story or, or any endeavors they've done. And, and, and I always thought that I want to be on the fly on the wall. It's why I chose that profession because to me, it was being able to be that vessel to bring other people's stories back. And, and my story is, you know, it's not a memoir. This isn't, this isn't about me. And I wanted to sort of maintain that, that balance. And, I wanted it to be something that was apolitical because I, I think there's so much polarization and so much partisanship and so many people with opinions and ideas. And I think that's that's great, but this wasn't what I wanted to do with this book. This was about the stories and the people. What's your current writing project? Do you have one? I'm working on a bunch of different things, but I have another book project that I'm slowly developing. It's going to take a little bit of time, but I'm really interested in the the survival aspect of of human beings and and just this idea of of really ordinary people that survive extraordinary situations and and the worst of what humans can do to each other. And I just you know in in a I guess in an odd sense I I want to make it a somewhat uplifting book because I think if these people can really pull out these extraordinary things from from deep within then i i really think we as humans don't know our resilience and don't know our potential and i think there's a lot we can learn from from survivors do you do you agree with you know people often say war reporters are adrenaline junkies is that the case or can you be a war reporter you know and just, and not be an adrenaline junkie so i think it's a, you know it's it's definitely a, a stereotype and it definitely uh, you know applies to a lot of journalists i'm sure but more often than not, I think, you know, a lot of the journalists I meet, um, especially the women, the, it's definitely not, uh, it's not about the adrenalism. It's not so much of it, I think, for me personally and, and for a lot of other people too is you do become addicted to it, but it's not the adrenaline you become addicted to. For me, it's always I become addicted to you forge these very fast, tight bonds with people. And, and when you're in these very hostile situations, your fixers and their families and the people on the ground that protect you, they become your family. And so I guess in a way I become addicted to, to sort of having this kind of nuclear unit of people that that, uh, that I, I just I form these tight bonds with. And there's also a simplicity about being in war where you're just focused solely on surviving and telling a story. And I think when you know, it sounds a little cliche, but when you know your your calling or your place or what it is that you're meant to be doing uh, for that chapter of life, 
it's there's a lot of peace with that so there's peace in the chaos and so when i think i have to come back and remove myself from that there's a there is an anxiety or there's a you know there's the real life problems of, of the bills and the rent and the you know all the little day-to-day things we deal with um the, the, and you you crave going back almost to that simplicity and you crave going back to a place where you feel that that is where you're meant to be so i think that's an internal struggle uh, a lot of us deal with and, and also a certain degree there's guilt so i never want to you know i get to go into these places and and experience these things but i also get to leave and, and and a guilt comes with that because i know that a lot of the subjects and the people that i write about and talk to they don't get to leave they have to live with this sort of chaos day in and day out. There really is no silver lining for them. So I think uh, it is an extreme honor, but it, there's also a, there's also a guilt associated with, with returning as well. When you come back from these spots, do you ever feel sort of an impatience with people, you know, in the West, as far as the little things that seem to bother them? Do you feel like, Hey, there are bigger things to worry about? I do sometimes. And I think sometimes we have a tendency or and I say we collectively this sort of wanting to be um, I think a lot of us have lost a lot of meaning in our lives. And so what I see a lot is people trying to be parts of movements or, or jumping on sort of cancel culture, cancel culture bandwagons or, or trying to be part of these kind of social justice movements. Some of them are important, but some of them aren't. And I, I just see that that people are searching for meaning for their lives and, and, uh, you know, it's disturbing sometimes when that, that meaning can become a little askew. And so I do get a little bit impatient with that because I think we, we are so lucky and it's certainly an imperfect country, but we're also uh, extremely lucky to be here compared to really most places on the planet. Um, but I also, at the same time, I also recognize people's problems are real no matter where they are. Um, and everybody has everybody has struggles and difficulties, and I certainly don't want to be somebody who minimizes that too. I don't want to be the person who comes back from a war zone and and dismisses everybody else's problems. I think it's also important to show compassion for for everybody, no matter you know where they're coming from and what they're enduring. So, um, where can people find you online? You have social media, website. Yeah, Twitter and Instagram I use mainly, which is uh, the same handle. It's Holly, H-O-L-L-I-E-S-M-C-K-A-Y, and also my website, which is hollymckay.com. Mm-hmm. And you can contact me through there, and I also have uh, a lot of my writing and, and things I share there too. Okay, good. Um, well, that's all the questions I have. Um, it's been really interesting. Do you have any parting words or thoughts? Just, yeah, I get the book. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback on it. Um, please feel free to reach out to me, uh, a messenger on uh, Instagram or through the email or uh, or write a review on Google. And I, I just always love hearing people's feedback and what speaks to them. And if there are certain stories that speak to you more, I, I'd love to hear about it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. In my next episode, I speak with Henning Hillman about French privateers and pirates of the 17th and 18th centuries. Bullseye my subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. 
If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.